This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, GapFest listeners. Have you checked out Slate's new audio bookstore yet? Now you can buy the latest bestsellers directly from us at Slate. It's truly a better way to buy audiobooks. There are no subscription fees. There's no standalone app to download. When you buy from Slate, your books get seamlessly delivered to your preferred podcast app, the same place you're hearing this show. So it's not like, where is it? Where can I find it? Where did that book go? Plus, every purchase supports the distinctive independent journalism you depend on that we do here at Slate. And one book you can get at the store is The Hardest Job in the World by John Dickerson, the GabFest's own John Dickerson. John's book is, of course, about life in the Oval Office, the presidency and its challenges. It's a fantastic book. And if you stay tuned to the end of this episode, you'll hear a special excerpt from The Hardest Job in the World. So to buy the book, go to slate.com slash GabFestBooks. Use promo code OVAL before December 1st to save an additional 20%. That's slate.com slash GabFestBooks. Use promo code OVAL. That's O-V-A-L. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for October 28th, 2021, the Is Facebook Evil edition. I don't even know why I have that question mark. Is Facebook Evil question mark edition? Hey, you're just exploring ideas, man. Yeah. You're just throwing stuff out there. You're just asking questions. Just scratch man. your chin a little bit. Scratching on the beard. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. You heard her voice at Yale University Law School in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey. And John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning in New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. I like the way you pronounce my last name. It's the way... Uh, you ever seen Mr. Dickerson's Blend by Pete's Coffee? Yeah, yes. totally. Yes. It's not spelled yeah. the... It's not spelled the same way, but for there was a period of my life where whenever I saw that in the supermarket, I would pronounce it just the same way you did, David. Is it, um, does it, speaking of your name, is it, am I crazy or is there some, do you have some relative who's like Dickie Dickerson? Or is it, no, well, that was my I mean, nickname and it was my brother's nickname and my dad's name was Claude. And so he tried to wriggle out of that. And so they called him dick dickerson and then they when he was a kid they called him dicky uh his people his friends from roanoke when he was alive um still called him dicky so yeah he was dicky dickerson love the dicky dickersons all generations of dicky dickersons this week yeah. on the Gabfest, the facebook papers reveal the deep darkness at the heart of that company can anything be done to stop them then will president biden get his social spending and infrastructure bills through congress will they be enough to save democrats in virginia's gubernatorial election next week and then a new book lists out a hundred things the internet has taken from us we'll talk to its author pamela paul plus of course we will have cocktail chatter i have rarely been as depressed and unsurprised about a non-deadly event as I have been about the Facebook papers. In the past week or so, a consortium of media companies, first the Wall Street Journal, then practically everyone else, has collaborated with Francis Haugen 
the Facebook whistleblower who smuggled massive troves of internal data and conversations and records out of the company. The revelations from the Facebook papers, I don't know. I mean, I was in a fight last night whether they're extraordinary or they're not extraordinary. I think they're kind of extraordinary. They're kind of things we knew, but then we we now know them. It's that the company knew them. It's how much yeah. the company knew them and decided not to act on them or took forever to act on them. And yeah. Right. So things like that Facebook gave expressions of anger five times the weight as likes when measuring engagement, encouraging a vast prolif- proliferation of anger, that almost all of its efforts to restrain hateful and violent speech are in the U.S. 84% total. Yeah. Do we have 84% of the people in the world? I think we, we don't, do not. actually. We have about no. 5%. So, so it, it creates enormous you know, gale storm cyclones of rage in countries like India, where people are overwhelmed with content that encourages violence and hate, uh, that the company did scarcely anything and did it way too late to constrain the January 6th planners, even after warnings from staff. It has a white list of millions of influential users that it basically exempts from its rules and lied to its own oversight board about it. I could go on and on and on, and we will. We're going to hear more and more. But Emily, to go to your point, the theme of this coverage is that the company itself knew it was promoting division and hate because that made users more engaged. And it chose that path again and again, despite warnings from its own staff. Right. I mean, in a way, I mean, if you've been following social media for a long time, if you've been ever tried to report on Facebook as a company, like you sort of intuited this. And maybe that's why we're unclear about whether it's extraordinary or not. It's definitely extraordinary. Whether it's surprising is a different matter. But the the specifics are important. It's important to understand the way in which they were making these choices and the number of times that they declined to take another path. One thing that has struck me is the line Facebook is taking, they've tried, like, they're sort of spitballing about how to respond to this. They've tried, like, insulting Haugen. They've tried kind of minimalizing it, trying to save the subject. This week, the line seemed to be, we have every incentive to make Facebook a place that users have a positive experience in so that they'll come back. And the reason that is so disingenuous is that what they have every incentive to do is to make sure that people spend more time on the site. And positive experience and addictive experience and, you know, getting recommendations for extremist content or responding to things that make you really riled up. That is not positive, but that is actually what gets the eyeballs. And it's the that is a fundamental problem. It's why the issue with Facebook is the whole business model, the whole architecture. I do think there is some level of denial that some of us and actually, I think Haugen has this, that the, the there isn't a way to just sort of tweak it a little bit. It's a more fundamental set of changes. And it goes against the company's bottom line. Like, they're still making so much money. Their valuation is so high. Well, I mean, one of those points, Emily, to, to dig into that a little bit is to your, your point about it, that they seek engagement. Somebody, I can't remember who I was reading this, notes that Facebook actually is really good at promoting community. Its online communities genuinely promote community. It promotes pro-social behavior, encouragement, connection, alliance. But the problem is that it's promoting community among people whose alliance and, and connection is made over hatefulness 
and rage and anger. So it's making people, yes, you can do that sort of for people who are interested in skateboarding, and that's nice too. But if you yeah. do it for people who are interested in, like, you know, overthrowing the government or, or attacking people of a different religion, that it turns out to be even better at that. And that's alarming. But, but I, I think that slightly might confuse people about what one of the big problems Facebook, uh, one of the bad things that's happened here is that, well, what you're saying is true, David, that does create a kind of community. They always mischaracterize the driving community behind Facebook. So people would make complaints about Facebook at various times, and they would say, oh, well, people want to just get together and share pictures of their aunt's kids, when they knew behind the scenes that that wasn't how people were using it. Um, I mean, it's like the cigarette smokers saying, you know, people just want to have a warm thing near their mouth. Like, it's a complete mischaracterization of how they know their product worked and how it w- and the engine that was driving it. And that they've, and in their defense of it now, they're continuing the mischaracterization that they perpetrated and that these documents show for this very long period of time. I want to shift to solutions because I think that what we should be learning from all of these internal revelations is that. It is a mistake to think that Facebook and other social media platforms are going to fix these problems themselves. Their business intensives go in the other direction. And what we do as a world when that happens is we impose regulation on companies, right? We see that they're not operating in some completely benevolent way, and we try to rein in the ill effects, the externalities to use the sort of... um, I don't know. That's to me seems like a law school term, which maybe I shouldn't have even said to begin with. Anyway, so I feel like I'm sure I've recommended this newsletter before, but I'm a big fan of Casey Newton's Substack. He writes about tech and he had a newsletter this morning about a British regulation um, affecting how kids experience social media. It's called the Age Appropriate Design Code, and it has a default for kids under 18. It created take-a-break reminders for kids. It's doing more to check ages, mapping what personal data the platforms can collect from British children, switching off geolocation, um, and providing a high level of privacy by default. I think it's really important to start thinking about these kinds of solutions. And you don't have to, like, imagine the government coming in and controlling speech in some Department of Content moderation scary way to think that trying to have some sense that this is a consumer product, that we can think about how it operates, that the algorithms could, you know, be something that the government gets into a dialogue with the companies about, that at least we should know what's going on internally. These are all really important ideas. And I'm disappointed to some degree about how I feel like some American commentators are just kind of dismissing this. Um, I'm going to take a shot at a friend of ours, Farhad Manju, who I thought wrote a column about this kind of dismissing potential solutions. Like he picked a bad congressional bill instead of thinking about some of the things that really are promising. Well, but also, Emily, isn't don't we have a problem in the US? I don't know how widespread this is, which is that both conservatives and liberals want to regulate Facebook and similar platforms, but they want to do it for totally opposite reasons. I mean, that has been a huge problem. But I actually think that in the sort of like, you know, Senator Blumenthal and Senator Blackburn coming together in the hearings last month and the hearings about kids that Congress had this week, you're seeing a a greater um, sense of collaboration and like an understanding of what the underlying problem is in a way that is not just like these false claims of conservative bias and liberal nervousness about any kind of regulation. I think they're getting more on the same page. Do 
Do you guys think that the analogy I was I was um, having this discussion with a friend? It, are they more like tobacco companies? Is Facebook more like a tobacco company? Is Facebook more like a processed food company, a sugary cereals company, where we all know the damage is being done, but it's it's not really being hidden? That Facebook is kind of like it's all known or is it like tobacco where there's an explicit effort to hide it or is it in some ways even more uh insidious than tobacco which is my case which is that with tobacco the harms are to an individual with facebook who is a user of the product with facebook the harms are to a society and where it affects even people who want nothing to do with the product even those of us who have nothing to do with facebook as a product are still affected by it and affected by the poison it spewed out into the political system around the world and therefore and it's its threat is much greater even than what was coming from tobacco i mean is it like we're all living in a really smoky bar all the time yeah we're we're all experiencing secondhand smoke um but it feels much more it feels like to Tobacco smoking, you can quit. You can stop. Um, the incentives that are that Emily talked about are both Facebook's, but they're also all of ours and all of our own. And there are lots of people who have no interest in stopping. That, in fact, even when Facebook tries to do some things like tag postings and say, well, this is disputed or, or say that this is straight out wrong— um, there are people for whom the tag that says it's straight out wrong is an inducement to then go read it because they they believe that the political correct police have gotten to Facebook and that hidden behind this tag telling you it's wrong is in fact the real essential truth. And so it becomes a signifier for even greater spreading of misinformation while you're trying to do something technologically to stop the misinformation. And they've also found that when bad information is put out there and it's not immediately characterized as bad – People think it's extra true because it hasn't been. So I guess my point is that the, that there are, are things that the company can do, but our own addictions still exist out there for others to take advantage of or for us to go find things that please us. And so I don't know how, where the analogy is for that because you can shut down all the cigarette makers and people are you know going to go find the tobacco, roll it themselves, and uh, keep smoking. Emily, going back to your point about ways this can be improved, this can be ameliorated and fixed, how much of that can be done globally? Because the, the, Facebook is a U.S. company, so the power there's power in U.S. regulators to act on it here that maybe the Indian government doesn't have or the government of, of uh, Thailand doesn't have. Um, do you worry that even if it gets it gets crimped and, and its edges pinched here, that it will continue to be baleful everywhere else? Oh, I'm relying on Europe. I think the Europeans are going to lead the way, both in terms of the problems of competition, like of having near monopoly, and then also some of these levers we were just talking about, this British regulation. I think we're going to see more regulations, right, that, you know, Facebook, these other social media platforms that are so huge, they are not European or British companies. They are American companies. We have an incentive to protect them as kind of homegrown, which, you know, Mark Zuckerberg likes to talk about the threat of TikTok as a way of trying to get American lawmakers more on his side. And the Europeans don't have that conflict of interest. I do think that it's always important to remember that 
There are other autocratic countries where there's a big incentive to crack down in a way that really does increase censorship and make it harder for people to protest and basically like shut down the internet. And in countries where, you know, WhatsApp is a hugely important tool for communication, that is like a real threat. So it's important always in the international picture to be thinking about both of these dimensions. And I really recommend reading the reports by Freedom House, which every year kind of takes the pulse of free speech protections around the globe and thinks about internet re- regulation in this pretty sophisticated, comprehensive way. Well, I mean, I mean, so you're saying WhatsApp is a is a potentially a, a tool for freedom and association. And yet it also yeah, has but, all these negative yeah. effects with groups, yeah. hidden group messaging that then spreads. Yeah. Although this is one thing that actually public pressure succeeded in changing. I mean, it used to be that you could share, you could have these private WhatsApp groups where you could send some message, including something really hateful or violence inspiring to as many people as you wanted or 100 people. And now they've limited it. I don't know whether it's like 25 people or a really small group, but I think that is one area in which you see actual improvement by just changing the way the damn thing works. Sometimes people say Facebook and sometimes people say the social media platforms. And the more I think about it, the more I really do think this is a Facebook problem. It's not that Twitter and YouTube and Snap and TikTok don't present problems. Of course they do. And maybe if they got bigger, they would present even more problems. Their, their crimes, their sins in the world seem so much smaller than the ones that Facebook is responsible for. And that, so that focusing our fire on Facebook seems smart to me. Well, well, it's also always important to say that it's not just Facebook, the site, since they own Instagram and WhatsApp. Like, right, that's part of your argument is yeah. that they're so huge. Um, well, they're three billion people. Yeah, that's the... Um, yeah. <laughs> that that would be but i think the core mechanic the core product mechanics which is what was identified in the facebook papers this week which meant that the the actual structure and basics of how the product functioned matters more because it's going to 3 billion people it matters more because they blunder into countries without understanding the sensitivities like india is the best example it seems to me um but that core product mechanism and knowing how that works and how that shapes our decision making while obviously Facebook has the biggest impact, understanding that is a is going to matter for any attention-seeking platform and social media, you know, because they all rely on core mechanics that grab as much of our attention as possible. And if our attention is guided by our emotions, this is always going to be a danger. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is the veil now streaming only on Hulu. After our gala, after our bonanza slate plus last week, how are we going to follow that this week? It's a good thing Slate Plus isn't like a guest and we, we're not like, oh my God, that was amazing. And now we're just going back to like the C-list. It's just us. So it's okay. Yeah. Slate.com slash GapS Plus to become a member. A lot of you signed up last week and get these delicious extra segments that we're doing. And you also support the great journalism Slate does. And you also get bonus episodes and you also get no ads on any Slate podcast. So it's a lot of great stuff by going to Slate.com slash GapS Plus to become a member. And today... We're going to follow on a segment we're doing about what we've lost from the internet. 
we're going to talk on Slate Plus about what we have gained from the internet. We're going to talk about the things that we feel have improved our life most from the internet. Again, slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up. John Dickerson, as we tape on Thursday morning, where do we stand on Build Back Better <laughs> and the infrastructure bills? Uh, Does it feel like the Democrats well, are like closer? To, I'd like to quote... I'd like to quote Congressman Brendan Boyle, who said, we're just missing two things. What exactly is going to be in the bill and how we're going to pay for it. Other than that, we're good to go. Um, it's felt like that way. And as we, we arrive here at Thursday morning, it feels ever more that way. What happened Thursday morning in the wee hours while I was up, having been awakened by the amorous ruddings of whoever lives in the apartment building next door, I <laughs> Wait, saw what? a piece break. <laughs> okay. Ruddings is such a... Such a I pejorative know. word, man. That's so... It was 420. I don't know. Oh, my God. I think was, you should be celebrating those people good for them, whoever they are. Exactly. Do you think um, it was the end of their night or the yeah. beginning of their night? I don't know. Also, it's not entirely clear. They might have been because anyway, whatever. <laughs> the fact is um, uh, the Washington Post had a, a piece that was very exciting. It said, Joe Biden is going. President Joe Biden is going to go to the Hill and meet with Democrats, and uh, you know, and and present with to to them the plan. But then, to, in the piece, twice it pointed out that it is you know, used the phrase "it is impossible to know um, what the details are," and it is impossible to know whether the the progressives who have sought specificity and details before they vote for the infrastructure package that is tied to the social spending package. It was all impossible to know. So on Thursday morning, the White House was basically trying to make the announcement the father of the legislation. By announcing that Biden was going to announce the legislation, he'd actually get the legislation he wanted. So basically what we're where we are is that there is a debate over whether they can get to an amount of social spending and then whether they can find the tax laws necessary to pay for it. And they're doing the Times had a great piece about how they're doing it in this higgledy-piggledy, rushed way, making tax policy that usually takes months and months to work out. Oh, man. So, John, as I understand it, if they do not pass the infrastructure bill, infrastructure bill by Sunday, they've got to authorize a whole bunch of transportation policies separately, which is just a huge pain in everyone's butt. And so they, the goal is to get a, a vote on the infrastructure bill and to get a vote on the infrastructure bill they kind of have to have an agreement on the build back better social spending bill is that right exactly and so when you get the 50 votes that you need in the senate on the build back better bill uh, because you have mansion and cinema who don't want to vote for build back better but who do want to vote for infrastructure the challenge is that when you get the 50 in order to pass the senate for the president's social spending bill you lose the 218 you need in the house uh, because the the progressives won't go for a Build Back Better bill, a social spending bill that is watered down, which is the only kind of bill that's going to get 50 votes in the Senate. So, Emily, what, as far as we know, has been ripped out of the social spending bill and what still remains? Oh, all the electric um, power provisions that seemed important for climate change. Family medical leave is gone now. Universal two years of college, universal community college. There's some big things that have fallen out. Permanent child tax credits made temporary. Thank you. Yes, permanent versus temporary. Right. I mean, I actually think there's a good argument for it being more targeted in a world in which you can't do everything. I just find these negotiations where a mansion and cinema have so much power to be 
I'm just, I maybe, I can't tell if it's, I mean, partly it's just the idea of them keeping this hostage. And partly I'm just tired of it. Like there was a New York Times headline like yesterday that was like, Joe Manchin, Democrats seek Joe Manchin as key vote in legislation. And I was like, what? Like, couldn't this have been the headline like every day for the last year? How can I have to read another piece about this? It's true. It's Democrats are experiencing what Republicans felt in a much shorter and acute way when John McCain torpedoed their effort to undo the Affordable Care Act. You know, that happened in a pretty fast way. It was done. It was over. It was it was they were all furious and angry. But this has drawn out in this really long way. And it's also felt particularly with Kirsten Sinema for a lot of Democrats like they have no idea what where she's coming from, what her needs are. It just uh, you know, it, it which adds to the frustration. You know who she reminds me of? You know the white, what's it called? The white witch in Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe who just, there's like a sort of arbitrary, like, nice. weirdness about her. I just don't, I, I find it, un, her unfathomable. I just don't get it. Does she offer Turkish delight to passing children? Oh, yeah, she the ate. Turkish delight. That would that would be good. And she had a really great carriage. Is it the white witch? Am I calling yeah. her the right thing? Okay. Yeah, yeah. She had she looked great great outfits too yeah, um, great outfits exactly the, well the other the other i mean there's so many funny things where cinema and mansion also have to agree on how you fund this and their the policies the tax policies that they're willing to consider are kind of antithetical to each other so cinema refuses to consider rolling back the trump tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy uh she does she is willing to consider some kind of corporate minimum tax Mansion won't do the billionaire tax that cinema would consider. And so they're just like the the kind of finding the path, which is a funding path that the two of them can agree on is also hilariously difficult. And it's it, it's just sad. As of Thursday morning, there was a discussion to, to try and get some money, basically because in order for this to f- fit the requirements of passing it through reconciliation, it has to meet some funding requirements. And so everybody's on the hunt for the 700 billionaires in America. And uh, David, you outlined the differences. And as of Thursday morning, there was a discussion about a 15% minimum tax that interestingly Manchin floated as what he was calling a patriotic tax, which goes to sort of the Teddy Roosevelt view of amassing great wealth, that it's actually uh, unpatriotic, that it's bad for the country when that much wealth accumulates, because there's no way at a certain level that that much wealth can accumulate without doing damage to the country, which is quite a radical kind of lefty idea for someone like Manchin, who everybody is talking about as a centrist or painting. When you tie patriotism to tax paying, when Joe Biden suggested that once, it was the it was the uh, it was the cause for a whole fleet of fainting couches to come uh, in when uh, when people attacked him for saying it. And now you you have mentioned, but by the time people listen to this, that may have disappeared because the tax provisions seem to be coming and going super quickly. Emily, do you think they will pass Build Back Better and the infrastructure package? I mean. Didn't you ask me this last week? I feel like they have Probably. to pass something. No, no, actually, well, I don't know. Maybe you didn't. <laughs> everything, I, everything is like like a Groundhog Day with redux, this fucking yes, bill. Yes, it's been going on for so long. <laughs> I'm going to continue to say that I feel like they have to pass something. I don't know why exactly I think that, except that it is just like collective Democratic Party suicide. They're like walking off a cliff together. And so I sort of feel like in the end... Like that logic will prevail, but I don't know. I'm not. I'm not confident. 
Two things. One, I'd like you guys to weigh in on. It seems to me that is whittled, if something passes, it'll be highly whittled down, but that it is tactically makes more sense to have tried to do something big and get it whittled down because we're you're still talking about a 1.5, 1.75 trillion dollar piece of social spending, which is huge, bigger than the Trump tax cut. The messaging for the Democratic Party is they've had these huge public fights. But at the end of the day, the this is the party that prides itself on being reality-based. There seems to me there are two important realities. One is the political reality that a divided party is going to be screwed in 2022, that the party has to unify for its own electoral survival. And so they have to jolly up whatever passes. As unhappy as some people may be, they have to point out that, hey, Biden passed almost $2 trillion in COVID relief. Now here's another $1.5 or so in social spending. That's like close to $5 trillion in spending. Hey, that's all good for us. B, that they have to realize that basically in Washington, all of these grand things that people were talking about were highly limited by the structure of politics the way it is right now. That's just a reality. So the question is whether Democrats will embrace those two realities or whether if something passes, it'll just be a huge continuing knife fight over over what passes. If I were a betting person, I would bet they reach an agreement. They've got an agreement. And then some Democratic senator like drops dead, like some Democratic senator from Rhode Island, like had, like mysteriously drops dead and they no longer have it. That would be that would be the perfect coda to this complete rat fuck of six months of legislating. I mean, it's also why wasting time is not smart. But they're not really wasting time. I mean, they're they're spinning their wheels. I mean, I just. But well, they're I mean, they're having to try and make legislation when they've got the barest possible majority in the Senate and and not much more of one in the House. Fair. You're right. It's just a reality of of. I mean, that's why I'm saying it's it's it seems to me if I'm a Democrat, I want to recognize that fact. And as unhappy as some people are going to be, because this is far short of what they expected that um, and it's important in these fights to to ask for everything because you know if you ask for a limited amount you're going to get less than that. So anyway, it seems to me though that it this is what happens when you're in this situation that they're in. Before we close, John, can you give me your take on the Virginia governor's race? Well, it's. Um, you know, neck and neck, it will launch a thousand hot takes, which will matter because people who draw conclusions based on what happened in Virginia are going to be making buying decisions and public policy uh, pronouncements that will affect the 2022 races. So there are a couple of things to watch. One, the salience and power of cultural attacks in the Virginia race. Um, Youngkin, the Republican, has uh, both talked about critical race theory and now about a uh, Virginia specific issue about the, the novel Beloved, whether parents should be in direct control over what their children learn in schools. This matters because if that works in Virginia, you're going to hear it a lot of other places. There's also the role, of course, or non-role of President Trump. How salient is he in this race, but also in other races. Virginia matters, of course, because it's basically a blue state now. So if you have a Republican getting elected, the first one since Bob McDonald, that will give people, you know, not crazy reasons to make conclusions about other places where tight races are being held, because the places where tight races are being held are where it's not full of liberals or full of conservatives. It's where the electorate is more mixed, which makes those electorates in other districts and other states a little bit more like Virginia. And I have no idea how it's going to play out. It's neck and neck. Of course, Northam was pretty neck and neck at this point, too, and he ended up winning by nine points. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. The telephone in the kitchen, private humiliation, sick days, the school library, figuring out who that actor is. These are just five entries on one of the most delightful lists you're going to see this year, A Hundred Things We've Lost to the Internet, which is also the title of a new book by Pamela Paul, who is the editor of the New York Times Book Review, host of the Book Reviews podcast. And her book explores one of the great topics of modern life, which is how the internet has changed us in a delightful and new way. So Pamela, welcome to the GabFest. Very happy to be here. So we all have our own set of lost things that we pine for. You you talk in the introduction about, you know, some someone the fishing spot no one knew about, the September issue of Vogue, the poker game lost to online gambling. What I like about your list though is that you've made it both universal and very specific. So I'm gonna start off with one question, which is that if you had a one item list of the things that we lost to the internet, just one that makes you saddest, what would it be and why? Oh man, that's so hard. I have two, but I'll, I'll give you one. Um, it's that feeling of being in one place at one time. It's what much better adjusted, more meditation capable people are able to do when they, you know, do their, their um, Zen thing in the morning. And I've never been able to do, but I'm much less able to do it now. It's that feeling like when you are sitting here, right. And I'm sitting here with you. I have simultaneously, you know, at least 20 tabs open between three different devices and my brain can be, you know, in, in six different places at once I'm slacking, I'm texting, I'm randomly looking at some, you know, list of old Jennifer Jason Lee movies. I don't know why I am also looking at some angry political thing going on on Twitter. Um, I'm reading the news and I'm editing something and just that feeling of like, how am I in all these different places simultaneously? Whereas it used to be when you woke up, say, on a Saturday morning in your bed, that's all that, that was there you know, with you. You didn't have access to this, these infinite worlds that would kind of enter your brain. So do we have more control over this than we sometimes take? I mean, I know it's addictive. I totally fall prey to this. And yet... Sometimes I feel like particularly people our age and older who remember what it was like to be fully present in the moment that we have like more of a responsibility than we actually take on to like go to lunch with someone and put our phones down and just be there having an interaction. And I wonder how you wrestle with that question of, you know, what we're sort of what's being rained upon us and what we the trouble we cause ourselves. 
Well, look, all of these things, these apps, these websites, these various forms of technologies are products and services that are sold to us. We are choosing to use them. So there is obviously some you know, agency in these decisions. At the same time, we're all creatures of habit. The idea for me of taking a vacation and leaving my phone, and of course I'm calling it a phone, but what is it? It's not used for, it's not a telephone. It's a, it's a portable internet. The idea of leaving my phone home and going on vacation for a week is terrifying. So I do have agency. It's just that we often don't take it because we're so ingrained in these habits. So, yeah. And also it feels like, Emily, what you're talking about is like constantly having to hold a beach ball under the water, this like staying away from the phone. And that is, that is, you know. What a great metaphor, John. I I can't remember who I'm stealing it. I can't remember who I'm stealing it from. But anyway, it causes like, you know, stress to keep the beach ball under the water. But, um, you know, I am as fussy as anyone about the old style things here. No, you're more fussy. I have a typewriter. More. Significantly more more. My question is, Pamela, can you give me a gloss? I've always assumed that this is my own idiosyncrasies and that all I was trying to do is raise my own peculiarities up to some higher plane by saying that we've genuinely lost something. So can you help me out here and say that what you've written about and what and all the things that I miss too are actu- actually objectively worth trying to cultivate and bring back and hold on to and that, and that we're not just being bypassed by modernity? You know, I do think that a lot of these things are worth holding on to. And I think, you know, a lot of the nostalgia is justified. In many instances, of course, it's not. Imagine what the lockdown would have been like without the Internet. But to get to your point, like there are I love that you love pencils. There is, I think, a kind of yearning for some of that old timiness. And it's not just among sorry to, to say this, but like oldsters, like you and me, it's actually among people who've never experienced it. Like, it's interesting that teenagers and 20 somethings sort of are, you know, look towards things like Polaroid cameras, like that became incredibly cool for a while. Vinyl is now cool. You know, New York Review of Book paperbacks are cool. Um, so there's this certain kind of desire for the the before times. So your book mixes the serious and the trivial but there was one that really tripped me up there was one item that really caught me which is you list as a thing that we've lost to the internet as unpopular opinions and and you end that with line with the internet comes for us all one day and obviously we're in the middle of this very vigorous debate about cancel culture and what that means and you as the editor of the times book review are constantly facing up to books and the books that may may have unpopular opinions or or reviews that may that may be mean about those books. I mean, you live in a world where where unpopular opinions ought to be thriving. Are you how worried are you about that? Like that's the one that really that's one that really gets to me. <laughs> I have no opinion on this whatsoever because I work at the New York Times and my opinion is unknown and it exists in that perfect medium that everyone else's opinions you know exist in that won't possibly ruffle any feathers or cause any unhappiness. Um no, uh that's obviously not answering your question. <laughs> so I mean, it was said like, with this heart. Is it was great. It's a, you <laughs> yeah, can leave it right that's there. <laughs> <laughs> that's a better you know, answer. It was, my, it was <laughs> 
Well, you know, it was my revenge for your characterizing my book as serious and trivial, which I think probably also describes me as a person in many ways. I think that was um, a compliment. But, no, David I mean, loves the trivial. Yeah, it? totally. Okay, good. Um, no, I, I, I'm I'm leaning into it, but but this is I I think a very serious and important thing. Unpopular opinions. We all know what that means in terms of politics and the culture. What I think is interesting is to kind of take that to another level and think about where else that takes place. And one that I've noticed is that today, Google is basically, you know, it, it's like a partner with um, most American public schools and that kids are using Chromebooks and they're using a Google suite of technology and they don't use Microsoft Word, they use Google Docs and they're shared documents. And this is sold to educators as fostering and teaching children collaboration. But I want to for you to imagine for a moment, like a bunch of teenagers, like eighth graders, horrible people, generally speaking, I, and I have them um, in my family. So um, now, but but eighth graders are not nice. And they are in a Google Doc collaboratively writing um, a paper together. So imagine if you were in there with your friends in eighth grade, what's going to happen? There's going to be one girl in there who's going to be like, that's so stupid and delete what you wrote. And if you try to have to say something original or something that might be a little bit out there to take some kind of risk, you're essentially going to be have that edited out by groupthink in that Google Doc. And I think that that is really interesting and somewhat terrifying because kids are learning from an early age that it's a little bit risky to get your opinion out there, even within the confines of a school paper that used to just be like essentially between you and the teacher. But now it's kind of peer reviewed before you're even figuring out what it is that you think about something. I think that's really well put. And I was going to ask you a question about kids. I mean, obviously, kids who've grown up with the internet, digital natives, it's not really just kids anymore. It's people in their 20s. They don't have an experience of loss. They have an experience of like, this is the way things are and you're an old for remembering it differently. And like, can you please stop going on about actually dialing rotary telephones? And, (laughs) you know, I mean, there's plenty of research about some of the um, effects we worry about with people being online all the time. And I think you just did a great job of talking about like group projects online. I wonder what else on your list you feel is a particular loss for kids. One of the things I talk about, um, and I feel like this is a safe space to discuss it, is the bookish boy. There are still bookish boys. There are still boys who read. The bookish boy is essentially a cerebral, imaginative child. um, And the internet offers everything that cerebral, imaginative child could possibly want and offers it in a much more seductive, readily accessible, popular format. So the kid who maybe used to sit there and read through, you know, all of Isaac Asimov and, you know, read the Frank Herbert's Dune and all of that, you know, at age 14 now has worlds in, you know, online gaming diving into Wikipedia or any corner of the internet that caters to his particular taste, boys who are fact finders, the kinds of kids who would sort of pour through the Guinness Book of World Records, all of that is online now. And there are studies that show that not only do boys read far less than girls and cite books far less frequently as one of their reading books is one of their favorite activities, and it's decreasing every year, um, but they also then tend to read less as they grow older. You know, I I don't think you could say there is necessarily causation between the rise of the Internet and the decline of reading, but it's a pretty clear correlation. 
I wonder what you think this means for ideas, because it seems to me as I'm looking through all the different entries in the book, there is, it feels like the general theme is that the distance has been shortened, shortened between need and fulfillment of the need. Mm. Um, and that creates that itchiness you're talking about, because we can't sit and read a book because we have some other need that can be immediately fulfilled by doing something else. And so our attention gets shredded. Well, obviously, any piece of art or idea requires consideration. You have to go slow before you can go fast. You mentioned that people like my uh, 19-year-old son have gotten very into LPs, and you know he now buys speakers that were made in the 1970s because it has a sound that is um, that it feels more authentic. So that's the counter force, but it feels like, I want to know what your thoughts are about whether it's this shortening of the distance between need and fulfillment has irrevocably changed the way we think and the way we seek solutions uh, in our world. I think it definitely has. I mean, what we've lost really is process. And I think that's also why there's sort of this trend simultaneously towards things like crafting. Like there was a book that came out a few years ago out of England by this guy, Alexander Langlands called Craft, like Craft, C-R-A-E-F-T. And I found myself reading it. I'm the least crafty person on the planet. Like I can't even do anything with popsicle sticks. Um, But there were chapters devoted to like roof thatching. But just the idea of being involved in a time-consuming and tedious process that then, of course, gives you greater satisfaction and fulfillment once it's finally done. I think that we have lost that. I think that, so there's two things. We're so accustomed to instant gratification that we've kind of lost our appreciation and frankly, our habituation with process. But the other thing is that in order to have those creative ideas, you have to stop the input right? You have to stop information and distraction from coming in in order to use your sort of personal reserves of um, creativity and thought and just mind wandering, you know, serendipitously around to come up with anything new or interesting or anything that's just frankly from you. We've lost the times that we used to have really frankly being bored, which is the first thing in the book, and having nothing to think about so that just nothing is coming in. And then that's where you come up with your idea. So I find myself sometimes walking to the train and I think, oh, during this 10-minute walk to the train, I could be A, listening to this podcast, B, you know, going through my emails and hoping I don't trip over a dead raccoon. Um, C, like there's a lot of things that you can do during that time period. But what I'm not doing is actually sitting with my own thoughts and having those ideas. Pamela Paul is the author of 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. She's also the editor of the New York Times Book Review. I know this is not our topic, but I am so curious about the layers of level five biosecurity that must be in place at the Times to prevent you from knowing if your book is being reviewed or who's reviewing it or what's happening. But that's a topic for another day. That's a topic for another day. And I, and I shan't tell you anything. <laughs> Thank you for coming to the Gap family. Oh, total pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Um, cocktails have not been lost to the internet. In fact, there are so many ways, so many new recipes for cocktails. You can learn how to make cocktails from the internet. So, Emily, what is your cocktail chatter? I am stealing a cocktail chatter that was sent to us by Saroz Faravar because I felt like it was meant for me. It was about a couple who loves the Berkeley Bowl so much that they decided to take their engagement photos there. 
Their names are Joey Chang and Melody Yu. And the Berkeley Bowl is this amazing, I mean, to call it a market is to undersell it, store in Berkeley. And the reason this resonated with me so much was that when my then boyfriend, now husband, was trying to persuade me to move to Berkeley, he took me to the Berkeley Bowl as like a courtship ritual to prove to me that California was just infinitely superior to the East Coast when it came to food. Of course, he was right about that. We spent lots of time in the Berkeley Bowl. I still miss the Berkeley Bowl. So I love this story in a local publication called Berkeley Side. So thank you, Saruz, for sending this. And I feel like we should all go take engagement photos in our favorite markets. The photos are so cute. They're so cute. John, what's your chatter? Uh, my chatter uh, is, a, is a double chatter. The first is to mark the passing of Diego uh, D'Ambrosio, oh. who, um, did my you ever go did. to Diego? Yeah. He was a barber in Washington, DuPont Circle, near the Slate offices. Um, and he, he was uh, Italian, uh, and though he'd been in the States since the 60s, he, um, he sounded like he just walked, uh, you know, from Umbria. Um, and he was just a... A generous, wide, open-faced guy who uh, became quite famous for his little barber shop. And the thing that I always loved about him, in addition to what a pleasing and lovely guy he was, was um, he had this system for managing walk-ins. The rule was you basically could walk in at any time and get a haircut. I mean, there was no, it was not a, it was a regular old barber shop. It was not like a fancy salon. And he somehow was able to cut hair carry on a conversation with the various uh, people who came through, which over time became a a lot of dignitaries and the Supreme Court justices. And he was able to maintain this ability to to keep people in line and remember the walk-ins. It was extraordinary, like his his ability to to manage that without chaos. Anyway, he was a sweet guy. He died at age uh, 87 from complications or a heart attack related, I think, to, to COVID. The second part is a film called The Lost Daughter, which I saw at the Montclair Film Festival. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal, it's her directorial debut. It's got Olivia Colman in it. It is very disturbing, but really good. Really good. I want to see that. I'm Um, such a Maggie Gyllenhaal fan. And she was interviewed by a friend of the show, Stephen Colbert. And she's she's even more, she's just incredibly smart, thoughtful, restrained, just kind of, and to hear her talking about directing um, was was really great. And just the production and making of art and acting, um, and it all comes through in this psychological film. My chatter is a story I saw in the Washington Post about a hiker in Colorado. This hiker had gone out to hike Colorado's highest peak, which I never even knew that Colorado's highest peak was Mount Elbert. I would not have guessed that. Didn't return at the end of the day, and the authorities started looking, and they started calling the hiker's cell phone because they were like, this person is lost. We're going to call them. And the hiker was not rescued by these people because the hiker didn't pick up these calls because they didn't, they didn't recognize the number. So they assumed they were unhelpful spam calls. And so here you have somebody who is so, who's been so trained by the spamminess of phone calls on the internet that even when they face a life or death experience on a 14,000 foot mountain, they turn down phone calls to them, which is just either reflects deep stupidity on the part of the hiker, maybe, but also just the way in which the the kind of infection of fake messages and fake calls has pervaded the world. Um, so I like that story. Listeners, you have 
sent us great chatters again. You've tweeted them to us at, at @slategabfest. And in fact, this week's listener chatter is from Carrie Donovan and it's oddly rhymes with my chatter. So let's hear from Carrie Donovan. My cocktail chatter comes from a nail-biting Twitter thread and an article from Reuters. A recent volcanic eruption on La Palma Island resulted in three dogs being stranded by lava flows on an island of land covered in ash. It was determined that helicopters could not be used to rescue the dogs because of risk from ash and continued volcanic eruptions. And without food or water, the dog's health was quickly declining. A drone company was enlisted to catch the dogs in nets and carry them over 1,500 feet of lava. The drone operators were feeding the dogs and working out the details on how to trap and then quickly, before battery life of the drones ran out, fly the dogs to safety. While the complicated logistics were being finalized, the dogs were mysteriously rescued. When the drones returned to check on the dogs, they were gone, and only a sign saying the dogs are fine was discovered. It was signed, the A-Team. There is a ton of news coverage on these La Palma dogs, but we still don't know who and how the dogs were rescued. And while the Canary Islands seem very far away from Colorado, this story has really kept me captivated. I hope we find out who this A-Team was and how man's best friend was sprung from their lava prison. That is a crazy story. It's a really, it's a really crazy story. It was so fun. Um, no one actually knows if the dogs are okay. They believe the Wait. dogs are okay. But no we one's, have to no trust in the A-team, but we really have no idea. Though if you were going to rescue dogs, like, why wouldn't there, they be okay? Yeah, go like, across what would be lava, the point? lava to rescue dogs. Right, but it's crazy they haven't, like, had the news conference to trot out the just fine dogs. Huh. One theory is that they the rescuers used thermal imaging from a drone to figure out what a cool path through the lava to the dogs would be. So, anyway, we'll find out. We'll report back next week. That is our show for today. The Gaffist is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. Tweet chatter to us there. You can send conundrums to us at slate.com slash conundrums. We're still collecting them. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? On our topic, on our third topic today, we talked to Pamela Paul, of course, about her book, Things Lost on the Internet, 100 Things Lost to the Internet. And we thought we would use Slate Plus to do the flip side, what we've gained. What do we in particular feel we have gained from the Internet? And I have a lot of thoughts on this. But Emily, what have you gained? What is it? What if, if you had to make your list of 100 things you've gained from the internet, what would be near the top? As a person who gets lost constantly, I really think that help finding things has to be my answer because it has just saved me so much time and heartache. I mean, I know that, you know, it doesn't always work and it can be bad to not like go off on um, uncharted courses that you might have without. Google Maps or whatever feature that you use, but I have to say I am really grateful for all the times that I have actually been steered in the correct direction. John? Well, I've, I have some friendships that exist only because I, of I'm um, so jealous of this about you, and I, I was anticipating that you were going to say this. It's so great. Yeah, so that's good. That's good. I mean, I also, you know, I guess uh, like all of us, am um, pelted with uh, lots and lots of hatred, vitriol, and general 
unpleasantness. So, you know, it ain't all a picnic. But the friendships are real and eye-opening and expose you to all kinds of different things that you're... Because the people I've gravitated to on the internet tend to have similar sort of, you know, bespoke and weird interests in things... The, the friendships are of a different order, so that's kind of cool. Being able to reach out to musicians is um, amazing. Um, the first probably was John Prine, just, you know, randomly listening to one of his songs many years ago. I felt like it was just, I had to basically publicly say thank you, which wasn't really the way I got to come to know him, I don't think, but he responded. That was pretty amazing. Um, I've never met Jason Isbell, but I've been able to tell him um you know, how great his music is. And there are lots of musicians where that was the way. Also, the random search through YouTube for great musical performances, which, you know, before YouTube and the internet, you would like find and see some rare performance every now and again. But if you want, you can spend an entire day. And that's true of all kinds of any of your particular interests. I once got super interested in battles and gaming with realistic figurines and you can spend months in youtube battles between you know recreating the napoleonic wars um so it just as the deep place to go deep on any of your passions that that's all great i'm so basic i i'm gonna start with podcasting like Mm. i absolutely love podcasts and they didn't exist and they're totally a creature of the internet so thank you podcasts and also i make my living from that so Thank you for, for that, too. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hey, GabFest listeners. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, Slate is now selling audiobooks, and one book for sale is John's latest, The Hardest Job in the World. What follows is a special excerpt from that book. If you like what you hear, get your copy at slate.com slash GabFestBooks. Use promo code OVAL to save an additional 20% off if you buy before December 1st. That's slate.com slash gabfestbooks. Use promo code OVAL. On September 29th, 1956, the Cedar Rapids Gazette announced front-page news about the presidency. Ike setting up policy of firing back. With Election Day just a month away, the incumbent, Dwight Eisenhower, had finally decided to engage his Democratic challenger, Adlai Stevenson. This wasn't big news just in Iowa. In Delphos, Ohio, they woke up to this headline in the Daily Herald. Fire back when rivals go too far. Ike's new policy. In Tyrone, Pennsylvania, the Daily Herald heralded, Ike decides to answer demo lies. Editors opened the big type drawer for Eisenhower's decision because the president had previously resisted what he called the noise and extravagance of the campaign. Weeks earlier, Eisenhower had waved away an easy chance to attack Stevenson. The Democratic nominee had complained about the state of the economy, and Eisenhower's press secretary had accused Stevenson of cheering for bad news. When reporters asked the president about this, Ike said his rival must have been misquoted. Ike's press secretary held his next briefing from under the bus where his boss had just thrown him. Ike switched his strategy, but the former Supreme Allied commander hardly stormed the beaches. Firing back amounted to instructing the Labor Department to rebut Stevenson's claim about cost-of-living adjustments. 
It's not that Ike was mild-mannered. He wrestled to control his temper all of his life. The White House staff felt the sting of his wrath so often, they dubbed him the terrible-tempered Mr. Bang. He once flung a golf club in anger and almost broke his doctor's leg. When the sport vexed him, which is to say when he played it, the veins on his temple engorged until one observer said they resembled whipcords. Still, Eisenhower believed he must master his impulses. Anger cannot win, he wrote in his diary almost a decade before becoming president. It cannot even think clearly. Eisenhower believed the presidency was too serious to be concerned with the trivialities of politics. He also believed a president needed self-control to be effective. He didn't attack his opponent Stevenson for yet another reason. That reason, according to the Cedar Rapids Gazette, was Mr. Eisenhower's reluctance to engage in name-calling contests that he considers beneath the dignity of the presidency. Sixty-four years later, under President Donald Trump, the presidency is a name-calling contest in which he appears to be competing with himself. In his first 700 days in office, President Donald Trump insulted 550 people, a brisk rate of one every 1.25 days. Crooked Hillary, leakin' lion James Comey, Pocahontas, Elizabeth Warren, and little pencil neck Adam Schiff are just some of the names minted by the 45th president. At Trump rallies, his fans cheer the reveal ceremonies of his latest schoolyard abuses. The catchy ones are printed on campaign t-shirts. If name-calling were still thought to be beneath the presidency, Donald Trump would be seen as governing from the sub-basement. Eisenhower's idea of the dignity of the presidency is up for grabs. So is the Eisenhower-era idea that the duties and traditions of the presidency should curtail a president's drive for re-election. Trump's supporters explain that he just has a different style than previous presidents. This undersells him. President Trump is ambitious, and his behavior, the insults, the impulsive competitive maneuvers, are a window into those ambitions, just as Eisenhower's behavior explained his worldview. President Trump is in rebellion against the presidency. Its traditions get in the way of the quick results he wants. He either sidesteps or flattens obstacles or opponents that irritate him or slow him down. In 2019, his desire to circumvent the process when it came to policy towards the country of Ukraine led to his impeachment. Donald Trump is not just a traditional president who happens to have a rough tongue. His rough tongue is a sign of a president who is dismantling the traditional presidency. Hearing this, you might feel we are headed towards a predictable story, that this book will chart the stomach drops of the roller coaster ride of one president's administration. I would like to interrupt that assumption of a regularly scheduled program to say that this book tells a different, urgent story. The American presidency is in trouble. It is overburdened, misunderstood, an almost impossible job to do. President Trump is a part of that story, but he also obscures it. One of the problems with the presidency is that it has become such a celebrity office that it is defined by the personality of the occupant. But the problems with the job unfolded before Donald Trump was elected, and the challenges of governing today will confront his successors. To look at the office afresh requires a change of perspective, unhooking from the celebrity headlines in order to understand its evolution and challenges. That is the channel we will switch to now, for a moment, 
As you imagine hiring somebody to be president, or better yet, as you imagine what the job might be like if you had to do it yourself. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 